0: Welcome to the Get Healthier podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, rat Talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome. Today's episode is for those who eat healthy and yet can't lose weight. They're still sick with high cholesterol or diabetes or skin issues. And if you're one of those, if you've tried everything and nothing has worked, then today's guest, Dr. Gundry, offers you hope and a plan. But first, get ready to be shocked and relearn everything you know about healthy salads and healthy plants, because apparently they're not that healthy. And neither is brown rice. And to tell us why is our special guest today, Dr. Gundry. He's a Yale-educated, renowned cardiologist, a surgeon, a medical researcher, and the best-selling author of two books, including his latest, The Plant Paradox. He's currently the director and founder of the International Heart and Lung Institute, as well as the Center for Restorative Medicine in Palm Springs in Santa Barbara. What I admire most about him, though, is his passion and dedication to educating patients on how nutrition can heal them, sort of like what we do at Healerpedia and Heal Circle and the Live Longer podcast. To quote him, my mission is to improve your health, happiness, and longevity by making simple changes to your diet.
0: So let's start with, you are a record-holding surgeon and you're writing about how plants are attacking us. And how healthy eating is at the root of health. What inspired you to change your career and focus on diet as your instrument of choice?
2: Well, it actually um, all goes back uh, that I write about in my first book, which was called Doctor Gundry's Diet Evolution. Uh, I, when I was chairman of heart surgery at Loma Linda University, um, a gentleman who I call Big Ed who was from Miami, Florida, was sent to me for treatment of inoperable coronary artery disease. And um, there's surgeons around the country that people will go to when they're told that nothing can be done. And uh, I'm one of those. And so um, Big Ed was 48 years old. He was morbidly obese. He had such extensive coronary artery disease that uh, literally you couldn't put stents in and you couldn't do bypasses because there wasn't any place to, to um, put the bypasses. And he was going around the country uh, to some of the major centers and uh, this was about a six-month process. And he eventually wound up on my door, and I looked at the angiogram, the movie of his heart, and I said, well, you know, Big Ed, I, I gotta agree with everybody else. I, I don't think I'm gonna do you any good. And he says, well, yeah, that's what everybody says, but here's the deal. Uh, this has been going on for six months. I've gone on a diet, and I've lost 45 pounds. Now, this was a big guy when he was talking to me. You know, I weighed 265. Uh, and he says, I went to a health food store and I bought all these supplements, and you know maybe I did something in in my heart. So I'm going, well, you know, good for you, um, but uh, good for you for losing weight, but it's not going to change what happened in your blood vessels. And I know what you did with all those supplements; you made expensive urine. I used to love to say that. <laughs> And uh, he says, well, come on, you know, I've come all this way. What would it hurt to get another angiogram? And, you know, I sighed and said, Oh okay, let's get one. Well, it turns out that in six months' time, he had cleaned out half the blockages in his coronary arteries. Wow. Now, yeah, I was pretty excited because as a surgeon, there were now places that I could, you know, put bypasses. And... So I actually operated on him. Now, I did a five-vessel bypass. But if I knew what I knew now, um, I, I wouldn't have done that. Uh, but after we're done, uh, I said, you know, tell me about tell me about this diet. And he starts describing what he was doing, and about, oh, two sentences into this, I, I raised my hand and say, oh my gosh, time out. It turns out, you mentioned I went to Yale undergraduate, and uh, back in those dark ages, we could design our own major for four years, and my major was, um, I had a thesis that you could take a great ape and manipulate its food supply and manipulate its environment and prove that you would arrive at a human being, and I actually successfully defended my thesis. And wow, that's I, very yeah. impressive that you could defend that, that's that's.
0: I'd love to read that thesis at some point.
2: Yeah, so uh, it, it, so when, uh, when Big Ed's saying this about his diet, I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's my thesis from Yale. Mm. So I actually called my parents in San Diego. And I said, you know, do you still have my thesis? And, you know, and they said, oh, yeah, it's here in the shrine. And, <laughs> and I said, well, you know, send it up to me because... Uh, I was a big fat guy, uh, I was obese, I was running 30 miles a week, I was going to the gym one hour every day, and I was eating a healthy low-fat vegetarian diet at Loma Linda, and I had high cholesterol, I had pre-diabetes, I had hypertension, I did baby heart trans- transplants with migraine headaches, I had such bad arthritis in my knees that I was wearing braces on my knees when I was running.
0: And that was you. And that was you. And that was me. That's
2: and funny. and I was told that it was genetic because my father was exactly the same way, and there wasn't anything I you know could do about it, uh, certainly with diet. And so uh, then the other thing I wanted, I said, you know, let me see that uh, bag of supplements. And I started looking down through this bag of supplements, and you mentioned that I I hold the world record for a, a pig uh, to baboon heart transplant, but I'm, I'm very famous for resuscitating dead hearts and then transplanting them a couple days later and having them work. And I was putting an interesting concoction of things down the arteries and veins of the heart uh, to resuscitate them. And when I started looking through his list, lo and behold, the number of the supplements that he was taking, I was actually injecting into the veins and arteries of, of these hearts. And it never occurred to me to swallow the dumb things. So I I literally put myself on this thesis uh, and I started taking a large number of supplements and I lost fifty pounds my first year, and subsequently another twenty pounds, and I've I've kept it off now for fifteen years. And I started sending my blood work uh, initially up to uh, University of California, Berkeley, uh, and started noticing some rather dramatic things fairly quickly. And then, so I put my staff on this program and I put my patients that I operated on on this program and uh, lo and behold uh, their blood pressures normalized their diabetes went away their arthritis went away so after about a year of doing this at at Loma Linda uh, I looked at myself in the mirror one Friday and said you know I really shouldn't be operating very much anymore because I sh- I can teach people how to reverse disease by teaching them what to eat. And so I actually resigned my position and I set up uh, an institute in, in Palm Springs where I basically said, uh, anybody want to play? And all I ask is that every three months uh, I get to send off a, a lot of blood work around the country. and track what happens to you and, and other people when we change things in your diet and change supplements that we mm. tell you to get at Costco or Trader Joe's or, you know, Amazon. And so that's what, what started all this. Uh, so it actually had its genesis in, in my research at Yale University many, many years ago.
0: And how many successes have you had or how many patients have you had success with using your protocols?
2: Well, it depends on, on the area. For instance, uh, last year I presented a, uh, a paper at the European Atherosclerosis Society of a 12-year follow-up of over 1,000 patients with uh, known coronary artery disease who have been on the program. And just from coronary artery disease standpoint, if you have a stent or if you have a heart attack or if you have bypass surgery and have conventional therapy with statins and lifestyle modification, you have about a 30 to 50% chance of having a new event within the next three to five years. So in, uh-huh. in, our, in our group, we had less than a 3% new event in 12 years, which is fairly remarkable. And we've done, we we presented a 5-year study and a 10-year study at the American Heart Association of this, and that time uh, 500 patients and 800 patients. And so um, the data is is long-lasting and we can actually see on blood work who's, who's misbehaving and make some course corrections as we go. But uh, when, my, when my first book was published, uh, I had a lot of patients with autoimmune disease start showing up on my doorstep. And they'd come in and say, well, what do you know about autoimmune disease? And I said, well, I don't know anything about autoimmune disease, but I know a lot about the immune system. Uh, because I'm, I'm a transplant immunologist, and when you're trying to get a monkey to accept a pig as, as its heart, you, you have to do some pretty interesting manipulation of the immune system to make, that, to make that happen. So I said, well, I, you know, I, I think I'm pretty good at, you know, figuring out what the immune system's interested in. And so if you want to play, uh, let's play. And Mm -hmm. that actually was one of the big impetuses to look at uh, plants and how they uh, impact our immune system. So that's the segue into Uh that. How's that? Uh
0: Aha, that's a great segue because let's talk about the plant paradox, which is your latest book. You say, forget about everything you know is truth, and then you drop this bomb. To quote you, the more I removed vegetables with seeds, like cucumbers and tomatoes, the better patients felt and had lower cholesterol. Wait, what? Cholesterol? Plants are causing weight gain and disease. So tell us what is the plant paradox and how are plants causing us cholesterol and disease and weight gain?
2: Well, simplistically, plants uh, don't like us. They were actually here first. And from an evolutionary perspective, uh, plants are subject to the same evolutionary pressures as animals. And that is, plants have a life. They actually do not want to be eaten. Because if you eat them, then they can't have babies. And they want to have babies, just like us and they want their babies, their seeds, to survive, so they actually had it really good before animals arrived. Um, nobody wanted to eat them. Now, when animals arrived, and the initial animals were insects, uh, plants had a real problem because they, they couldn't run, they couldn't hide, and they couldn't fight, but they're chemists of incredible ability. They, they can turn sunlight into matter and we haven't figured out how to do that yet. So they use chemical warfare to make their predators uh, think twice about eating them or to make their predators ill or not feel good and or not thrive. And a smart predator would say you know every time I eat this plant I'm not thriving or in the case of an insect I can't move. Uh, The plant, the predator rapidly says I think I'm going to go eat something else. The plant wins hopefully, the predator wins because it learns and everything's pretty good. Pretty good balance of power and then humans arrive. And as most of us know, uh, humans are pretty stupid. So when we eat things that make us feel lousy, or make us gain weight, or give us migraine headaches, or joint pain, or brain fog, we keep eating these things and assume it's quite normal. And then we take Advil or Aleve or you know Nexium or Prilosex so we can have a corn dog, and we just never learn. And you know, parents basically say, "What do I have to do to get your attention?" Now, the plant paradox is that, quite frankly, I am a confirmed plant predator. But you've got to know who your plant friends are and who your plant enemies are. And a lot of that is based on uh, my and other people's research in uh, evolution, in that we're actually designed to... The longer we've been eating a particular plant and its lectins, the longer our gut bugs, our microbiome has evolved to handle a lot of these lectins, but also the microbiome educates your immune system as to whether these particular plant compounds are a real threat or just a pain in the neck and your immune system doesn't have to pay it a lot of attention because we've known these plants for 30 million years and it's okay. So the longer we've been eating particular uh, plants uh, in general, the more tolerant we are of them. So we we were actually tree-dwelling animals And we were used to eating leaves for actually about 30 to 40 million years. Um, We came from tree shrews. And one of the things we never ate were grasses or uh, beans, uh, like grazing animals are designed to eat. And so we've never interacted with those uh, lectins in those um, plants. Now, fast forward to 10,000 years ago when agriculture started, so we began interacting with the brand new lectins that not only our immune system didn't recognize, but the bugs that live in our gut uh, didn't recognize and weren't equipped to handle. And the amazing thing from human evolution, we were, we were actually very tall creatures. We stood uh, over six feet tall. And our brains were 15% bigger than they are today. And people go, well, wait a minute. No, no, no. We were little bitty creatures, and when then we got big. And actually, that's not true from the evidence. Uh, 8,000 years ago, 2,000 years into agriculture, we stood only 4 foot 10 inches tall, which means we had actually shrunk over a foot since the development of agriculture. Now, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, it's actually, and our brain actually has never reached the previous size that it was. And the, the other evidence is actually pretty clear. If you look at up until the last generation of Asians, Asians have eaten a very heavily uh, grain and legume-based diet. And they were actually very short. And it wasn't until the Western diet in the last generation has uh, penetrated Asia that you see, uh, really a rather impressive growth spurt. And that's because, uh, these plant compounds, uh, diminish growth. Now, if you think about it from a plant standpoint, and I'm, I'm very impressed with plants, uh, from a plant standpoint, having a smaller predator is a whole Mm -hmm. lot better because you'll eat less. Right. So the other thing that happened... Very clever. Yeah, very clever. Uh, They're literally
0: changing their enemy. They're literally influencing and changing the DNA, in some sense, of their enemy.
2: Yeah, they're... uh, again they you know they they've had uh, over 400 million years to work this out and they're um, they're pretty good about all this we we think they just kind of stand by and accept their fate Uh, but the evidence that I present in the plant paradox is that this is actually not true Uh, for instance just uh, as an aside if an insect starts nibbling on some leaves of a tree, uh, within a couple of minutes on the other side of the tree, the plant will begin producing far more lectins in the leaves uh, because the warning actually gets transmitted to the rest of the plant that were under attack and prepare for war.
0: Let's talk about the seven deadly disruptors, and then I'd love for you to tell us which are the plants that we can comfortably eat without them severely attacking us.
2: Well, one of the the problems that that has happened to us, um, we've actually had a pretty good uh, balance of power uh, between plants and uh, animals. And... Um we've kind of had detente. Uh we've had a set of microbiome that are pretty good at um, eating plants uh and plant lectins. And we've had a microbiome that educates our immune system that everything's pretty good, that we know these plants, uh we've associated with them for millions of years, and we don't have to get all bent out of shape. But things have really changed in the last uh, 40 to 50 years in some of our personal care products and some of the things mm-hmm. that we swallow that have really disrupted this communication. And one of them, um, I guess if I was going to choose one, it's the advent of broad-spectrum antibiotics. Not only do we swallow these things willy-nilly, but we give them to our animals to actually increase their rate of growth. And we know that broad-spectrum antibiotics basically is like pouring napalm on our lush tropical rainforest that is our microbiome. And there's evidence that one round of broad-spectrum antibiotics can deplete your tropical rainforest for up to two years before it actually grows back. And people go, well, wait a minute, you know, I take probiotics, friendly bacteria. Well, unfortunately, uh, if the rainforest burns down to the ground, we could put a bunch of new tree seeds in, but it's rather naive to think that those trees and the the ecosystem of a tropical rainforest is going to reestablish itself in a few weeks. In fact, it can take years. And, and so we've been really, unfortunately, very naive about this part. The other part that's so sad is we know that the antibiotic residues uh, are present in the meats that we eat and the chicken that we eat. And so we're constantly kind of killing off one of our first line of defenses against the plant lectins uh, by killing off our microbiome. The second thing that's happened is the use of nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, the NSAIDs. And these things were actually introduced about 40 years ago. Motrin and Naprosyn. And now we think of them as Advil and Aleve, and they were actually we prescription drugs. We like
0: candy, right? We literally oh, all exactly. those like candy.
2: Oh yeah, we. I mean, we have children's Advil, and That's what right. people don't. Yeah, what people don't know is that these were so dangerous that they were only available as prescription because we knew, drug companies knew, that these are actually like swallowing hand grenades. And they denude and blow giant gaping holes in the walls of our small intestines. Now, why didn't we know that? And why didn't our gastroenterologists know that? Well, our gastroscopes, our endoscopy, couldn't look down into the small bowel. So we didn't know what was happening until actually the pill cameras that we swallow were invented and then we could actually see the damage. But if you actually look back at the pharmaceutical literature, they knew this was happening and they actually called these drugs gateway drugs because the more you took of these, the more you would actually damage the wall of your intestine, produce leaky gut, and the more not only lectins, but little particles that I talk about called LPSs, which are bacterial particles, get into your system and actually increase inflammation and increase pain. And so the more pain you have, the more drugs you're going to need. That's right. And, it, and isn't it amazing that you'll advance to you know opioids and Vicodin, and they love it they sell this stuff. Mm. The third thing thing that happened is the advent of the stomach acid reducers what are called uh, proton pump inhibitors, PPIs, Nexium, Prilosec, Protonix. It turns out that none of us were born with a Nexium deficiency and we, we we actually have to have stomach acid for uh, really two reasons: uh, lectins are proteins, and you need acid to digest proteins That's and right. so stomach acid was actually a pretty good you know first line of defense against lectins but since stomach acid has another purpose and it's actually called the acid gradient and it's a fancy way of saying that bacteria for the most part don't like acid and the bacteria that live in our colon are kept down there by what's called the acid gradient that our stomach acid uh, is neutralized by our bile and our pancreatic juices but it's still present and it isn't until you get down to the colon that the acid is pretty much gone. Now if you take an acid reducer you don't make any acid and so bacteria that should live in the colon actually climb up into our small intestines and that's where you get small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. And the sad thing is the bacteria, the wall of our small bowel isn't really very good at keeping bacteria from passing into our bloodstream and our lymph. And so we have this whole generation that's just been colonized by bacteria all because they want to have a a corn dog tomorrow at the July 4th celebration. So these are... Yeah, and these are, you know, some of the most uh, egregious things. Uh, Probably the worst one is the advent of Roundup, uh, glyphosate. Mm -hmm. And this stuff has now been sprayed not only on GMO crops, which was what it was originally designed to do, but uh, industrial farming um, has to actually... uh, harvest a field on a particular day. And to do that, you want the field to be uh, mature and basically dried out uh, for easy harvesting. So we now take conventional crops, and we spray them with Roundup um, to desiccate them, to kill them. And a nice dry field is easy to harvest. Now, naively, you would think we would wash that Roundup off of all the grains that we harvest, or the beans that we harvest, or the canola that we harvest, but of course we don't. And we not only feed these animals, but we also, it ends up in our breads and our crackers and all of our consumer products, our corn chips. And we really don't think about that. Now we've been assured by Big Chemical that it's okay because humans don't have this enzyme pathway called the shikimate pathway that plants use to make Roundup kill them. But, and it's true, we don't, but the bacteria in our gut have the shikimate pathway. So we know that about, uh, glyphosates actually really change our bacteria. And we know that glyphosates actually change how we metabolize uh, vitamin D. We know that some of the most important bacteria that manufacture serotonin for us, the feel-good hormone, and precursors for thyroid hormone are decimated by uh, glyphosates. And so, you know, it's no wonder that Uh, we're all sitting around uh, depressed and hypothyroid uh, because we're eating glyphosate without knowing it. There's new studies out that show that women's breast milk uh, has it. Uh, There's even a sad study out that California wines have glyphosate, Uh, even a couple of organic wines because unfortunately it's been sprayed on the field next uh, to it. Exactly. Yes. And so, Europeans have uh, banned this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and That's they're, right. And they're smart.
0: So in America, the powers that be, and frankly, if you look at big pharma and doctors, people in the know, people that have, again, power and knowledge, are slowly poisoning the ignorant consumer. Is is that a fair statement?
2: Yeah. You know, I mean, all of this is good for business. Uh, unfortunately, right. most medical schools get their grants from big right. pharma or from big right. agriculture. And uh, if, if there's any kind of uprising that there's a problem, as I detail in the plant paradox, then uh, big pharma big chemistry is more than happy to contribute to the re-election campaigns of Congress or even state legislatures. And uh, we go on about our business. Um, That's right. It's...
0: That's right. So, thank you for writing the Plant Paradox and introducing the Plant Paradox program to us and doing this podcast so we can really not be ignorant anymore. I mean, there's no excuse, I would say, for anyone to be ignorant anymore because there's so much information from amazing people like yourself that are coming out and telling the truth. So, Let's talk about the program. So let's say I'm very interested in getting on a program that makes me joyful and healthy and back to a great weight and reverses my diseases. Tell us about the foundation of your program.
2: Well, the, the number one rule is what I tell you not to eat is far more important than what I tell you to eat. And okay. the principle is that you're not designed to eat certain foods that you have not been exposed to and sadly that's the grains that's beans. Uh, it's the nightshade family which are American plants like potatoes, eggplant, tomatoes, and peppers and goji berries. The American squash family like zucchinis, like uh, cucumbers, like peanuts and cashews which are american beans Uh, believe it or not the cashew is part of the poison ivy family and i don't think a lot of people are realizing that when they have their cashew milk or their cashew butter that they're consuming poison ivy and it actually works the exact same way on the inside of your intestines the American seed. It's
0: heartbreaking. Cashew was one yeah. of my favorite nuts. Uh,
2: I know. And, I and, cried you know, a little not, when
0: I read that. But
2: continue. Uh, well, it's interesting. I was. Um, we did a podcast with a uh, a vegan author who's very well known, and she, uh, bless her heart, said uh, that she was going to test my theory out because she had wonderful health as a vegan. And But she put herself on my program for a month before we did the podcast. And she said, you know, I actually thought I had really good health, but I, I'm here to say that I was wrong, that uh, I am doing so much better taking away some of these healthy plants that you told me to remove. And she said, I'm shocked. I really am. And I actually didn't know how much better I could feel, how much lighter I feel. And, you know, she said, How did you know? Well, like I like I talk about in my dedication, I've I've learned this by you know, tens of thousands of patients volunteering to let me look at their blood work and let me look at very subtle, sophisticated markers of inflammation and when I took certain, these certain foods away from them, these markers went away and when people would either on purpose or inadvertently put these things back in their diet, and we talk a lot about this in the plant paradigm, then these inflammation markers would reappear. So that's kind of rule number one. Now, Okay, rule taking things three, out. I have a question on the taking
0: things out. I have a question about white rice. Now, as an Indian, everyone, north and south, everyone has white rice. And, in fact, it's part of our cleanse, our our detox kitchen. You know, it's rice and mung bean. What are your thoughts on that? Now, we do cook everything in pressure cooker, and I know your book
2: talks about that. But,
0: yeah, talk a little bit about just just the rice and the mung bean.
2: Yeah, so, um, you know, you have $4 people use rice as their staple. And it's fascinating to me that 4 billion people in general, take the haul off of brown rice and eat their rice white. And surely right. 4 billion people can't be that stupid uh, because everybody knows how good brown rice is for you, but the lectins <laughs> are actually in, are, are in the hall. And right. so Asians have been incredibly smart about this. Now you're right, A pressure cooker is the... So white rice has far less lectins than brown rice. Uh, And a pressure cooker absolutely destroys the lectins in rice and in beans. And the modern pressure cooker is so useful because it's, you know, it's just one punch of a button and you're done. That's right. And I... There's a wonderful story, um, if we've got the time. I, w- I was sent uh, a 40-year-old woman who had moved to Los Angeles from Lima, Peru, and she decided to continue her uh, Peruvian diet, which uh, included a lot of quinoa. And mm-hmm. she uh, actually developed a really severe IBS, mm-hmm. and a couple of her colleagues sent her to me, and so I'm starting to tell her about the the Incas process of detoxifying the lectins in quinoa. And her eyes got really wide and she says, oh my gosh, my mother always told me that you had to pressure cook quinoa because it was so dangerous. And uh-huh. I thought that was, I, she said, I thought that was just, you know, a wise tale. And so I've been, just having regular quinoa here. And she said, My mother flew up here three weeks ago and said, You stupid girl, now this is a forty year old woman, uh, <laughs> I told you you have to use a pressure cooker and she took me to uh you know, a store and I bought and she bought me a pressure cooker. And she's saying Are Bless you saying my are. mother <laughs> Yeah, my, my mother was right? And I said, Yeah, your mother's absolutely right. I said, Tell you what, go home, use your pressure cooker call me back in a month and she called me back she said yeah mom and you were right uh, that was it uh, the pressure cooker I can have quinoa now yeah amazing." so
0: amazing. you know
2: we look at traditional cultures and uh, we, we don't learn from what traditional cultures uh, have done I mean look at the French and the Italians you know they eat white bread and they eat white croissants and they eat white pasta and mm-hmm. the idea, the idea of an Italian eating whole wheat pasta is just so crazy like, and, 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 now, and now we see it on menus and, you know, we've been, for thousands of years, we've been trying to get the hull off of grains and, right. you know, we've been trying to make bread white for 10,000 years and only, only the poor people got the brown bread. Um, And we just, we forget what traditional cultures uh, teach us.
0: It's because we live in a world of fads, you know, and some people make money off of these fads, and those people are powerful. and And the whole whole grain movement yeah. uh, started with fiber, right? It was let's yeah. get some fiber in us, and it's so unfortunate that they lost the science behind why. To your point, we spend hundreds of years figuring out how to take the fiber out of it or the hull out of it, and now right. here we are selling oat bran as <laughs> A highly expensive product, which, to your right. point, should really never be injected. Right. So you and mentioned, the fact, yeah,
2: one of the best. One of the best ways to produce coronary artery disease in an experimental animal model is to feed them wheat germ, because it has a lectin called wheat germ agglutinin which produces coronary artery disease the best way in a rhesus monkey to produce coronary artery disease is to give them peanut oil because it has a peanut lectin. And if you take the peanut lectin out of the peanut oil and repeat the experiment, they don't get coronary artery disease, proving that it's the peanut lectin that did it. And, you know, we we just have have forgotten all of this. You know, it's interesting. Um, William Keller, actually speaking of fiber, um, Henry Burkett was the father of fiber, and he was an English surgeon who uh, went down to Africa on a missionary work. Now, he was a colon surgeon, and he went down there to do colon surgery, and when he got down there, uh, this was around the turn of the century, he couldn't find anybody with colon cancer, and he was a bit disappointed, but <laughs> as a researcher, he, he, was, he said, well, wait a minute, what the heck are they doing? Well, they were eating huge amounts of tubers, uh, sweet potatoes, and they were actually also eating a lot of millet, which doesn't have a lectin, by the way. And he became obsessed with their poops. He would go around and take pictures of these giant bowel movements that these Africans were having. And so he decided that it was the fiber that was preventing colon cancer. So he came back to England and unfortunately not a lot of millet up there, not a lot of sweet potatoes, but they had a lot of grains and he didn't know that there was a difference between soluble fiber or resistant starches and insoluble fiber that are in the halls of grains. And so he kind of single-handedly made the mistake of equate all fibers fiber. And the really uh, unfortunately hilarious outcome is that he actually died of colon cancer, uh, the father of fiber, because he goofed and it was actually soluble fiber that he was observing the benefit, but he didn't know. So he's one of the big causes of why we think that fiber from whole grains is good for us and in fact you can actually show that the fiber in whole grains promotes colon cancer in an experimental model.
0: And what about psyllium husk?
2: Psyllium husks are actually really good for you. Uh, It turns out that Plants, uh, want a lot of their babies to actually be eaten, uh, but so they encase their baby in a shell that we can't digest. Flax seeds are another example. And they actually want you to eat this, and it will be okay. passed out of you, uh, somewhere away from the mama plant, uh, with a generous dollop of fertilizer. So there aren't any lectins in psyllium, there aren't any lectins in flax, uh, but by the way, since we can't digest an intact flaxseed, I get a real kick out of all these flaxseed crackers that are whole. Um, they're, they're useless.
0: <laughs> so Dr. Gundry, tell us about the other aspects of your program.
2: Well, so the other thing I really ask people to do is, I my personal feeling is the only purpose of food is to get olive oil into your mouth. And the more olive oil I can get into people, the better. There's some beautiful studies out of Spain and Greece and Crete that probably a liter of olive oil per week will actually improve your memory and uh, in women actually protect against breast cancer. Uh, that's a lot of olive oil. That's about 12 to 14 tablespoons a day, and I don't recommend that people start with that because they may be running into the bathroom with diarrhea. But right. olive oil has some amazing polyphenols that are, are spectacular for you. The, the third rule, or the second rule, is you are what you eat, but you are what the thing you're eating ate. And our... Our soils, number one, even for vegans and vegetarians, and I have both vegetarian and vegan uh, options in the book, uh, but our soils are so depleted of uh, essential minerals that it's actually okay. pretty scary. Uh, the third thing is I ask people to view fruit as candy because modern fruit has been bred for sugar content and it's interesting i was down in the south of italy a few weeks ago studying the oldest living people in the world who live in a little town called acciaroli and uh, i was actually at their farmers market and they had blueberries that were very, very, very tiny, like wild blueberries. And Mm -hmm. I was so delighted to see that because even at the farmers market in in Santa Barbara the the organic blueberries are the size of grapes.
0: That's right.
2: And that's not normal. And Uh, sugary sweet. And and we know that that's
0: not normal either.
2: Yeah, and you know, and our apples, you know, now have been, you know, they're, they're the size of grapefruit, That's and right. th- they've they've been bred for sugar content, um, and even the names, you know, Honey Crisp, and it's right. like this is unfortunately everything's, it, it's all a trick. And long ago, we used fruit. Uh, in the summer to fatten up for the winter. Uh, because winter was a time of less food. Well, there was a dry season, a rainy season, cold season. And interestingly, uh, my research in evolution, uh, which I talk about in the first book, actually shows that great apes only gain weight during fruit season. Um, mm-hmm. And we, we forget that, that there were no 747s bringing blueberries to Costco in February from Chile. And your, your computer program, if you're eating blueberries in February, uh, I got news for you. Your computer thinks it's August and you should be fattening up for the winter.
0: Mm. Interesting. So there's, there's your weight gain challenge right there. Yep
2: exactly and it's interesting I have a number of people who don't realize that if a a thing they're eating has seeds in it, it's actually a fruit and early on I found a number of women who were eating cucumbers and had high cholesterol and I took their cucumbers away from them and their cholesterol plummeted and it's actually we use cholesterol to carry the first product of sugar, which is called triglycerides, uh, around our body. And it's amazing if you uh, drop fruit out of your diet, your cholesterol plummets.
0: And that's everything with seeds, right? It's not just yeah. fruits with sugar, but it's tomatoes Correct. and it's cucumbers. Yeah. Yep. And yep. your book does a brilliant job of listing all of those. In fact, Dr. Gundry, I personally i'm using the plant paradox as a bible it's, uh, it's a huge you. book
2: it's, <laughs> it's a, big a book. huge
0: book it's a big book it's um, got insane amount of information that cannot be processed the first time or the second time you True. read it I've got highlighters of various colors and notes and margins. And you do, again, a great job of explaining what's wrong with the paleo diet, the low-carb diet. You talk about the keto plant paradox. Um, Your program talks about a three-day cleanse, which, by the way, is what I'm going to start tomorrow. So I am absolutely planning on following your diet. This has been uh, amazing, but your book is is so important. I feel everyone listening to this podcast should buy your book. Keep it in the library, not the online version. I think the physical version, because I think yeah. this is the kind of book that you really do need to flip through and highlight, and, and, and the lists and the recipes are amazing. I know we're out of time, so I will ask you one question and one case study. the The case study that that truly moved me the most, and you share a lot of wonderful case studies, including that of Tony Robbins, by the way. Yeah. Anyone who is questioning anything in the book should look at the amazing celebrities you've worked with and how you've healed them. I think the proof is right there. Uh, share the story of Tony and his vitiligo and how you healed him, and then I'd love to ask you one more question before we wrap up.
2: Yeah, so this is a different Tony than Tony Robbins, just to be clear. That's uh, right. So Tony was really one of the very early adapters of my first book and uh, he had a really bad vitiligo on his hands and vitiligo, for your listeners, is what Michael Jackson suffered from. It's the loss of pigmentation and uh, a few months after he started the program, uh, he came up to visit me. He lives in San Diego. And he says, you've got to see this. Uh, my vitiligo is, is going away. and In fact, it eventually all went away. And he said, what do you think is doing that? And you know, I could have said, well, this is a very anti-inflammatory diet and uh, that's why, but because I'm a researcher, I, I said, well now, let me think about this. Uh, melanocytes, are uh, modified nerve cells that actually migrate to our skin uh, in embryo form and plants original predator were insects and we know that uh, plant lectins actually interrupt the nerve communication uh, in insects and basically paralyze the insects and so I said You know, I have a feeling that you're attacking your melanocytes because they're a nerve cell and to a bunch of plants you're just a giant insect and so uh, that actually really stimulated me to look at lectins more thoroughly and i really owe it to him it's funny uh, a couple years later i saw him at a at a conference and his vitiligo was back and i said you know what's going on he says ah you know i've gotten lazy and i've stopped doing this and uh i said hey you know here this is a great experiment you know go back on this so he did, and it went away. In fact, we were up at uh, Harvard a month and a half ago at a big brain health symposium, and he was actually uh, chairing the session and sitting next to me, and he actually said, "I want everybody to look at my hands, because if you had seen me a few years ago, you know I had all this vitiligo, and I don't have it anymore." And just removing certain plants that Dr. Gundry told me were out to get me in my skin, uh, my vitiligo went away. And he says, so, you know, take it from me. Um, his his theories are more than theories. They're backed up by research and they're backed up by me. So it's, uh, I mean, it's really amazing. And I have a, I know I have a number of people with vitiligo that it goes away.
0: And I have a friend who is going to be getting this uh, getting your book as a gift as well as the podcast because she has it, and we are definitely going to help her as well. You know your story of tony and and his healing really underscores Hippocrates, who said the body will heal itself if you just remove the forces of destruction and I think you've done an incredible a favor to to us humans by sharing with us what those forces of destruction are because we live in this world full of overwhelming amount of information and it's hard to know from one day to the next what's good and what's bad. I mean I feel like every few years there's a fad and you know kale's great and everyone's juicing yeah. kale and then kale is bad. Weed grass is great and everyone's juicing weed grass and now weed grass is bad and it's hard to keep your head straight, and I think what most of us do is we just ignore everything and just eat whatever is being marketed to us on television, which is what, cheesy pizzas and chili and ice cream, and, and mm. know, to, to the example you gave, right, it's easier just to give up. So yep. my question to you is, what do you recommend to someone who says, I want to do this, this is a lifestyle I want, but it's been so hard? What have you seen work? What are some tips, one or two even, in how can we, those with not as great a willpower, but with the intention and with the right motivation to stick to the Plant Paradox Diet, what can you help us with in terms of sticking to the program?
2: Uh, Well, in general, I I just ask people to... Hate me for a couple of weeks and then you'll actually find that you feel so much better that you don't hate me so much. Uh, uh, there's a large number, there's a large number of people who, who can cheat, kind of do a 80-20 or 90-10 rule, but sadly, uh, about half of my practice is now autoimmune disease and I can tell you that in autoimmune disease you really really can't cheat and there's so many examples in my book of either planned cheating or inadvertent cheating that the autoimmune disease came back often with a vengeance. Uh, The good news is when you kind of get back on the program it goes away again. Um, So it's the more you view, uh, you know, food as foods that you were designed to eat and um, there's clearly, we were designed to eat leaves, we were actually designed to eat shoots like asparagus, we were designed to eat flowers um, believe it or not, broccoli and cauliflower are flowers and we, we absolutely were not designed to eat grasses um, and we weren't designed to eat Uh, unfortunately American plants. One of the sad things is uh, corn is uh, so dangerous that the French Banned corn as unfit for human consumption in 1900. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, that's why you just will not see corn on a menu in in France. And it's interesting. They declared that corn is only fit for fattening pigs for the for slaughter. And I would certainly agree with that. And if you if you look at the Carbon atom from corn. It actually has a distinct, distinctive structure. It's called C four carbon. Mm-hmm. And Americans are about seventy percent carbon molecules from corn, uh, and Europeans are only five percent molecules uh, from corn. And, you know, we're, we're just a giant ear of corn. And mm. since, since corn is actually foreign to us until, you know, 500 years ago, I don't want to be, you know, 70% a completely foreign uh, substance in me. But that's what we are.
0: Right. That, so. that makes a lot of sense.
2: Stay away from corn, and I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, Nebraska, the corn husker state, but stay away from it.
0: And all those delicious corn tortillas and all those yummy Mexican entrees, like enchiladas.
2: Yeah, and and there's, you know, there's now, there's been a real movement, Uh, I'll give a shout out to a company called Siete Tortillas that are Uh made of either almond flour or cassava flour, and... They're, they're doing a great job of, of making you know, foods that we like but aren't going to kill us. So, and, I, and I talk about these options in the book. There's, there's usually a way around this, and we can still have the things we want uh, in terms of texture and flavor that aren't going to kill us.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Gundry. You are single-handedly helping us all live a longer, healthier, happier life. That's a wrap. Share your love with a five star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com. Connect with us on Health Bootcamps, Facebook, and Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the Get Healthier podcast today.